This morning, Albert will be sharing a message entitled, What Do I Do When I Lose Hope? The scripture from which he will be preaching is Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of God. I can't breathe. Those are the infamous words that probably most of the world uh, is familiar with now. And they were the sad words, the tragic words of George Floyd. And we all know uh, the tragedy uh, of that incident and just the, just what it has unraveled, uh, not only in the United States, but with ripple effects really across the globe. Moving on to other headlines, um, even in Ontario during this pandemic, uh, something that's been brought to my attention and I see it in the headlines, uh, just the overwhelming number of elderly who have been victims of COVID-19, especially those in long-term uh, care health facilities, and seeing uh, just headlines of investigations happening now in just the quality, uh, control of these places, and how they are uh, upkept. And just other headlines that I've been irked by, um, these headlines of, of people fraudulently applying for uh, the government subsidies, the government, um, just uh, the, the funds, the emergency funds for people who need it. Uh, truly, during these times, people have lost jobs, but people making fraudulent claims and, and taking advantage of uh, our government. Um, these times, they're, they're, at least for me, 
I, I just find if, if my heart is sort of like a, a hot air balloon, I just find the air is leaking. And if that hot air balloon represents hope, I find that my hope is leaking, that just slowly there's a seepage of hope. When I think of just even the racial tensions that we see down south, and of course I have a heart for what is going on there, and I'm saddened and even angered, uh, just even reading and seeing an interview with a fellow named Desmond Cole. Uh, he's a Canadian, and he wrote a great book about uh, Canadian issues, and, and I agree with him. I, I found my sentiments agreeing with him, and he was actually a little bit annoyed. Of course, he was in solidarity with what was going on down south. But he says, Canadians, we have our own set of issues too. And he was expressing being agitated and annoyed at the fact that many Canadians, uh, even I find some of our own pastors, they, they're more caught up with American headlines than taking care of business right here in our own backyard. And so there's so many things that just during this time, it's so tumultuous, so chaotic. And I don't know about you, but I find myself losing hope. And so I want to ask for myself, I need an answer to this question, but also for you, what do you do? What do I do when we begin to lose hope? I want to compare it to at least one bright spot in the news cycles these days. And, and that was a week and a half or so ago, there was a successful launch of a rocket ship and astronauts by SpaceX and NASA into space. And I, it was such a delight watching that with my children. And for me, at least, it represented some hope. Uh, that rocket just taking off above the ground, defying gravity and breaking into the stratosphere and space and, and just going beyond our circumstances. It, it, sim it was a symbol for me of hope. And hope is like that, isn't it? We, we need to... If we want to hope we want to we got to keep looking up we got to keep looking up metaphorically speaking in our hearts we can't just be tied down bogged down chained down by the circumstances and the chaos that is right in front of us we need to keep looking up so as we come to today's passage um, I hope by the end of uh, just working through this passage in the gospel of Matthew today that your heart and my heart will be stirred with hope but that it would be hope expressed in a prayer such as this. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done through Christ on earth as it is in heaven. I hope that your heart will be stirred to hope in God that way and specifically in Christ, that you'll want to keep hoping in Christ and hoping that his kingdom will come on this earth and just right every wrong and bring peace to every anxiety. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time together uh, for this sermon is just to ask these two questions. They're similar questions. Uh, how do I keep hoping? I really believe that Jesus is giving us some ways to keep hoping in him. Certainly he's giving uh, specific ways for John the Baptist, as we will see, to keep hoping in Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, the, waited, the, the one that we've been waiting for. And similar to that, uh, how do I keep looking up? If hope means that we just keep looking up, how do we keep hoping? How do we keep looking up? And I want to show you at least three things that I think Jesus wants us to settle for ourselves so that we keep hoping. So here's the first one. 
First, settle for yourself what timeline you're living for. Okay? Settle for yourself what timeline you're living for. Specifically, are you living just for a temporal, temporary timeline? Are you just living for your life on this earth and then when you pass away, that's the the end of your story, that's the last chapter, and so you're just trying to maximize your time on this earth? So are you just living for a temporal timeline? Maybe just even for the immediate here and now in the short term, the next few months or whatnot? Or are you living beyond a temporal timeline and living for eternity? This is a recurring theme at Trinity Grace Church, and you'll hear me speak of it a lot because this is one crux of what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus gives us this this eternal perspective, this eternal timeline. Now, where do we see this? Let's get to the text. And as we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 11, we read, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. The understanding is here, uh, remember Jesus, we've spent the last three or four weeks just in Jesus' visionary talk, motivational talk, giving instructions and giving uh, just clear instructions for the disciples' mission, and he sent them off. And the understanding is here is that as he sent off the disciples to uh, various cities and towns across Israel, he is going to their hometowns. And so he went on from there to teach and preach. What was Jesus' activity? He was teaching and preaching in their cities. Now, teaching, it basically means explaining the gospel verbally. Okay? It's more of an explaining, unpacking uh, notion there. And when it says that Jesus was preaching, this is similar but very distinct and different at the same time. It's proclaiming declaring, announcing the gospel verbally. But the common tie between teaching and preaching is that they're both verbal activities. They're both messages being spoken by Jesus. Now, while Jesus is doing this, we read in verse 2, Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. Now, I want you to notice this is John the Baptist And he was arrested by King Herod because John the Baptist was calling out King Herod for his adultery. King Herod didn't like it. And with his authoritarian power, uh, he wanted to just mute this annoyance. So he arrested him and put John the Baptist in prison. So John is not in a good place. You need to understand that he has been uh, radically preaching of the kingdom coming. He's hoping for a a, a savior, a messiah. He's hoping that Jesus, his cousin, is the one. And after giving all his effort, all his energy, all his life, he finds himself in prison for his efforts. But while in prison, I want you to notice, Matthew records that John the Baptist heard about what? Jesus's deeds what Jesus was doing. So not only was Jesus explaining and teaching about what the gospel is and grace and the kingdom, but he was announcing it, he was preaching it, he was declaring it, and also Jesus was demonstrating through his deeds, through his actions, through his miracles, the way he talked to people, the way he related to people, the way he loved people and cared for people. He was demonstrating the gospel outwardly. So John heard about what Jesus was doing. Now, John, hearing about these things, he's scratching his head. 
He's scratching his head, and he's in a little bit of doubt. And we see this in verse 2 as uh, we continue the narrative. He heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, and he's a bit confused. So he sends his own disciples, his own pupils, to Jesus. And in verse 3, these disciples communicated a message and question for John the Baptist. Are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah that I have been preaching about and I've been looking forward to that I'm in prison for, that I'm suffering for? Or shall we look for another? John, you see, specifically, was confused about what Jesus was supposed to do. Jesus, John the Baptist had heard about Jesus' deeds, but John was confused. It wasn't lining up to his expectation of what Jesus was supposed to do. Now, there's a, a self-reflective question here. What was John the Baptist expecting Jesus to do for Israel, for himself as well? It was his own personal hope. And perhaps you and I can look in the mirror as well and ask self-reflectively, what do I expect Jesus to do for me? Now, we mustn't forget that this was a time of unparalleled religious fervor in Israel. John's preaching had proved to be the signal of God's kingdom, the kingdom of Israel breaking in. And for this, he had been thrown into prison. And so I imagine John, he is stuck. He is stuck between two expectations of Jesus. On one hand, he is stuck between the expectation of Jesus being a political, earthly Messiah like all the other Israelites were expecting him to be, to establish an earthly kingdom to just uh, overtake Rome and to push away Rome and free Israel from Roman grip. He was stuck between that notion and expectation of Jesus and a political earthly one and expecting Jesus to be an eternal Messiah, a kingdom that is not of this earth. And that's why John sends his disciples to clarify. Now notice here, there's an opportunity for you and I, uh, for you and me to see ourselves in this gospel story. We can see ourselves in John's shoes, in, in, the, in the prisons of life. And isn't it true? It's natural for us as human beings when we find ourselves in the prisons of life, these questions naturally come up. God, who are you really? Are you actually really good? How could you let these things in my life be going on? I really need to know, do you, are you who you say you are? Are you truly good? And, and do you truly love me despite what my circumstances are telling me and making me feel? And so again, that self-reflective question we need to ask along with John the Baptist, what do we honestly want Jesus to do for us? And I mean that in a self-exposing manner, not in a self-entitled manner as if Jesus is a genie and I'm not giving you permission to say, what do you want Jesus to do for you? What's your wish list? No, I, I'm asking myself and you to, in a self-exposing way, to ask, what's my honest motivation in looking to Christ? Do I think he's here to make my life, my temporal life, better? And so that's why John the Baptist asks, or shall we look to another? See, the truth is, all of us, every human being, since Adam and Eve, from the beginning of time to the present, everyone is looking for some form of a Savior. Everyone is looking for some form of a Messiah. And we will 
define someone or something or ourselves or a job or a certain salary bracket or a certain address or a certain government or a certain political leader or a certain object or a certain recreation, a certain person's affection. We are experts at making someone or something our Savior or Messiah. And so we need to ask, should we be looking for someone or something else beyond the things that we've already set up as our own saviors? So again, settle for yourself. What timeline are you living for? We, we, we learn this from John's questioning. And Jesus is about to point to the answer that John needs to be looking beyond just the here and now and just time in history right now into something eternal. John had lost some hope because he was expecting something more immediate. Or at least John needed to have his hope restored and uplifted to something gloriously eternal. And Jesus is about to give that to John. So let's see what it is. So second, how do we continue to find hope? How do we find ourselves continuing to look up? Settle for yourself, second, that Jesus Christ is enough concrete evidence, okay? Settle for yourself. Every human being needs to make a decision about Jesus Christ because he did come in history. Even non-Christian, academic, uh, renowned secular historians acknowledge that Jesus was in history. And we can prove historically that he actually died on the cross. And even secular, non-Christian, non-believing historians, academic historians and professors, they will attest that the Bible um, meets all the historical standards and requirements to be able to prove that Jesus resurrected based on the scriptural texts. And so every human being needs to make a decision We need to settle for ourselves. This historical person, Jesus, who claimed to be the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, is this person enough concrete evidence for me to believe in God and life beyond this life and God's kingdom to come, the same kingdom that John the Baptist was looking forward to, the same kingdom that Jesus came to announce. Now, where do we see this? Picking up in verse 4, Jesus answered John the Baptist's disciples, go and tell John what you hear and see. Now, Jesus basically, remember from earlier, John the Baptist, while in prison, he heard about the the deeds of Jesus. He had heard about what Jesus had been doing. So John already knew what Jesus was doing, how Jesus was ministering. And now what Jesus does, he basically just repeats he replays to John with the things that he's already heard. And so this would have been nothing new for John. And we have to trust that Jesus in his stark compassion, his sincere compassion for John the Baptist, he's not being uh, trite, he's not being mean and just sending back the same news. But what Jesus does, he quotes the scriptures that John would have understood, that John would have had some uh, scripture memory from his childhood just, uh, just catalyzed and sparked. He would have remembered, he would have recognized these words that Jesus is saying, and Jesus uh, explains to report to John, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. John the Baptist would have recognized these words as coming from Isaiah the prophet. 
the, the 35th chapter. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. This is a prophecy of the Messiah to come. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In other scriptures, like Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. You see, Jesus was trying to show John, bottom line, Jesus was asking John the Baptist and you and me still today, to trust God's word. John the Baptist would have recognized Jesus' report. He is quoting God's word, God's promises through the prophet Isaiah, God's scripture, God's word. You and I need to understand God's word comes in two forms, okay? Two basic important forms. The most important form is Jesus. Jesus Christ is God's final word in person. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of all of God's promises, all of God's ways, all of God's morals, all of God's hopes and and dreams for his people and his church. It's all embodied in Jesus, and Jesus is God's word in person, in the flesh, incarnate. But God has also left us scripture. Scripture is God's word in speech and writing, and and Scripture reveals Jesus. Jesus is the full embodiment of Scripture in the flesh. Now, what you and I need to understand then is this. The use of Scripture, the use of Scripture has worth only as much as it truly reveals three things. The person of Jesus Christ, the grace of our Jesus Christ, and the discipleship of Jesus Christ. Scripture only has as much worth as it truly reveals Jesus. That's what God has left us scripture for. It's not there to beat people over the head or just to extract some morals or whatnot. No, we're to find the person Jesus, to fall in love with the person Jesus, to realize how much Jesus has loved us, how much God the Father has loved us, how much the Holy Spirit wants to indwell in us, and all that because of grace. We're meant to find grace in all the scriptures. But this grace is meant to transform into an outward uh, just goodness and actions, and charity, and kindness, and patience, and and all the good things that people aspire to. Grace is meant to birth that as we believe in Christ, and we're loved by him, and we continue to be transformed into his likeness. You see, what what Jesus was doing here was pointing John the Baptist back to God's word. He was saying, remember the scriptures, God's word, and, and now connect the dots. Connect the dots between everything that you see me doing. I am fulfilling all the promises that God has made through his word. I'm making the blind see. I'm making the lame walk. I'm preaching a good news of grace to the poor in spirit. And I'm the fulfillment of God's word. I'm God's word in person. And that's why third, you and I need to settle for ourselves to hope in grace. If we're going to continue to hope We need to hope in grace, not in anything else, not in a promotion, not in even ultimately on this earth. We could fight all the civil rights 
battles and, and, and just eradicate racism. But if we have not placed our faith in Christ and received his grace, it will all be for naught on the other side of eternity. We need to settle for ourselves to hope in grace. The scriptures are, only have worth in as much as they reveal Jesus and his grace and walking in his grace. And so that's why, picking up on the narrative, verse 6, Jesus says, now John the Baptist's disciples have left, and now he turns to the crowds, and they would have known who John the Baptist is, and they would have known all the headlines of the day that he was put in prison by King Herod, and that he was suffering. And Jesus says of John the Baptist, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, I I hope this sounds familiar. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, he uh, shares his famous Sermon on the Mount, and he opens it up with the Beatitudes, the, these nine statements of true blessedness, true happiness, a happiness that is eternal and forever and really unbreakable uh, ultimately. And so I like to say, with a wink, this is the 10th Beatitude because it, it's the first time after the first nine Beatitudes that Jesus uh, says again, blessed. And he says specifically, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, we need to understand what Jesus is getting at here when he says not offended. This word offended in the Greek, it's where we get our English word scandalous or scandal. It's scandalizo, but it just literally means to put a stumbling block or impediment in the way of someone upon which they may trip or fall. And so Jesus, to paraphrase, he's saying forever and unbreakably happy is the one who is not stumbled by me. As they are uh, confronted or, or presented with the message of Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he has to offer in terms of life and life after this life, that we don't trip over Jesus. Happy is the one who stands on me. Instead of tripping over him, we stand on Jesus Christ. So I want you to picture this gigantic rock. Here I have a picture. Uh, my boy these days, his uh, new love is uh, mountain biking in the Dawn Valley. And this picture here is a giant rock in the Dawn. Now that is not my boy. He's not quite there in terms of this large of a jump, but he's taken some pretty uh, significant jumps for his size and age. But imagine you come upon this rock and you have a choice. You can either just bang yourself into that rock, trip and fall and become injured and be offended by this rock, so to speak. Or, as this uh, skilled cyclist is doing, you can use this rock. You can stand on this rock, ride on this rock, and just be catapulted to just new thrills in life and new joys and excitement. And so I offer that just as an analogy. Jesus saying, I hope, blessed is the one who isn't, tripping over in life because of me, who doesn't stumble because of me, but instead, as they stand on me, as they uh, are in union with me, that they find new life. Now, in this world, grace, grace is certainly a stumbling block. Why? People trip over grace because we live in a predominantly through and through performance-driven world. Everywhere you look in the fabric of life of this universe is performance-drivenness. If you want to make it in life, you have to be performance-driven. And in that sense, grace is scandalous. 
If I'm standing in line at Costco for two hours to get in, and then all of a sudden someone buds at the very front and just goes in and bypasses that two-hour wait, I am angry. Now, in all honesty, that picture of that person bypassing the line and just being able to get in, let's say maybe because they're uh, chummy-chummy with the Costco worker there, that's actually a picture of grace, believe it or not. Because they are in union with that Costco worker and have favor, they are able to go in with ease without going through the hard work of waiting in line. That's actually a picture of grace. And so some of you are realizing, even some Christians right now that are listening, are thinking, that is not fair. And that's true. In that way, grace is scandalous to the person who is seeking to derive their self-worth, their self-esteem, their self-image from their hard work, grace is scandalous because you have to shed it all. You have to be willing to have radical humility and just lay it all down before God and say, I can't be good enough on my own. Now, why do we live in a performance-driven world? And I say this a lot at Trinity Grace because it's such an important lens for life. If you'll just understand this lens that the original contract that God made with humanity, with Adam and Eve, beginning with them, and and it still runs, it's still in operation. That's why this life and world and universe is so performance-driven. Just imagine this ladder that we have to climb up to the heavens. It stretches to eternity to get to God. And at the beginning, God said to Adam and Eve, if you just obey two commands, there were only two steps to the ladder at that point at the beginning. They just had to enjoy God in the playground of the universe that God had presented to them for their pleasure and to not eat of the fruit of the knowledge, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But they failed on both accounts. And now this ladder has extended eternally. And every human being since that time has been clawing and scratching and striving to try to get back to some sense of perfection and worth. And ultimately, whether our hearts admit it or not, we're trying to get back to God and to be in his good favor and to be accepted by him. And Jesus, I need you to see that he really paints this picture in the next few verses. He really brings it out. As he continues to elaborate on John the Baptist, in verse 7 he says, And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? So already here, Jesus is painting John as a strong man, as a tough man. Did you see a reed shaken by the wind? Jesus is being sarcastic here. And he's saying, did you see a weak person? And this actually in the language could even mean a mentally ill person. Someone whose mind is just not all there and just shaken by life. Did you, in verse 8, what then did you go see? A man dressed in soft clothing? And this literally means effeminate. And, and so this word, it carries a lot. I mean, Jesus is being provocative. And he's saying very intensely and sarcastically, is that the kind of man you went to see, a very effeminate man? No, see, he's trying to paint John the Baptist as this strong, burly man. And he goes on to say that he was a prophet and more than a prophet. He says that, behold, in verse 10, that John the Baptist played a key role in, in history, in God's redemptive plan, his God's redemptive history, his plan. Whether or not John the Baptist could see it himself or not, whether or not the people at the time could see it, whether or not you and I can see it, what Jesus is saying that John the Baptist played a watershed moment. He played a watershed role in the history of God's revelation and redemptive plan. Now, Jesus, he 
uh, just, this is so important for Jesus to establish this that he goes on and he elaborates all the more. He says in verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, now notice that, born of women, meaning just people born into this earth, there has arisen, and Jesus is saying he's not uh, speaking hyperbole here, he's not embellishing, he's not being uh, exaggerating, he's saying there's been none greater than John the Baptist. What Jesus is saying is that John the Baptist, if you think of a ladder trying to get to God, that John the Baptist is the greatest human being next to Christ who has walked the face of the earth up to that point. He has worked hard. He has lived a godly life. He has um, just lived a righteous life. He has lived a tough life. He He is a tough man. He is the greatest that the world has seen up to that point. And now Jesus says something astounding, mind blowing, head scratching. And he contrasts John the Baptist and he says, But there's someone greater than John. And so Jesus continues in verse 11 Yet the one who is least, where? In the kingdom. Not on earth, but in God's kingdom, meaning those who have been saved by grace. You need to understand that Jesus is painting two pictures here. He's contrasting. John, you see, in God's redemptive plan, represents. Everything of the law and prophets, John symbolizes and embodies, just as Jesus embodies the word of God, John embodies everything of trying to get to God up that ladder through the law and the prophets and moral obedience and trying to attain perfection, offering those uh, just perpetual sacrifices for, for atonement. John represents all of that, trying to work towards God and back to God. But Jesus is saying even the least who is saved by grace, who knows God's grace in God's kingdom, is greater. Wow. you got to let that sink in. That is life-changing. That is is almost scandalous. It's like the Costco situation. It's scandalous. And so again, Jesus, this is so important to him, he continues to elaborate. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist. The days of John the Baptist represents uh, all of history and time, the law and the prophets leading up to John. And Jesus says in these poetic words, until now the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And just to paraphrase, the kingdom of heaven has suffered forcefulness. And the forceful try to take it by force, meaning people are trying to get into, break down the door of heaven by their own willpower, by their own force, by their own hard work. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Jesus, he he begins to uh, say and and begin to ask self-reflective questions to the crowd. And in verse 15, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Jesus, he's speaking very profoundly to us to this day. Here are children in the marketplace in the busy place, the the busy spaces of our lives, as we go to work, as we're trying to earn a living and a a livelihood. And while we're there, Jesus is saying there are two extremes. On one hand, 
There's a message of here's happiness. Here's extreme happiness. Dance in life. But they don't want to dance. They, or maybe they arrive at that dance and they realize this doesn't make me as happy as I thought as it would. And then on the other extreme, they play a sad song, a dirge. And yet even in that sadness, they don't want to go there because that's an uncomfortable, dark place. And there's no happiness there. See, what does Jesus do ultimately? He says, well, he's first of all saying, John the Baptist came with this dirge-like message. You have to repent. This heavy-handed message where we feel guilt and shame and we need to turn to God. That's the effect of the law. And Jesus is saying, now I've come kind of the opposite, more full of life, even eating and drinking, doing the opposite of John, and yet you all reject me. And yet, Jesus, his song was not just a dance. His song would also be a dirge. And we see that when he goes to the cross. And it's on the cross that we see Jesus both in a dance and a dirge. We see Jesus both opening up the possibility that we can dance with God again. We can rejoice and find happiness in God again. But why? At the cost of his own dirge. At the cost of him laying down his life in our place for our sins. What do you do in this world of unrest that is looking for justice, but also wants to love? The only way love and justice comes together is by grace. You see, it's on the cross that love, the dance, and the dirge, and the longing for justice, the pains from injustice, they come together on the cross. We find grace, the grace of God in Christ on the cross. And that's when we can hope again. That's when we can hope and continue to pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done through Christ on earth as it is in heaven. That's how we're going to hope. That's how we're going to continue to step by step work through the messiness and brokenness of life and not just wanting to take revenge and fight back, but by grace as there is mutual forgiveness towards those who have offended us and mutual change as there's both of that going on, forgiveness and change on both parts step by step, little bit by little bit, because of the grace of God and that power that he affords us through Christ, that we'll begin to see more and more glimpses of God's kingdom on earth, even as we hope for that final day when Christ will bring it to full fruition. And John the Baptist will be there, and I want to be standing beside John the Baptist. I hope as many of you as possible will we'll all be there together with John the Baptist and realize I don't need to look for anyone anymore. You truly are the Messiah. You truly are the fulfillment of all my hopes. God bless.